Don't even concern yourself about what you think you want to do. You do your best at what you're doing, scholastically. The other part, the critical part for me, is to be involved. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. It is my pleasure today uh, to be speaking with uh, former Florida Supreme Court Chief Justice uh, Barbara Periente, who is uh, a graduate of uh, George Washington Law School um, and Boston University, who had previously worked uh, for the Cohn-Wagner Law Firm and then was a Fourth District Court of Appeals judge and spent 20 years on the Florida Supreme Court. It's such a privilege. Thank you. I would love, if I can, to just start with uh, growing up. I know you grew up, is it New Jersey or New York? I was born in New York City, uh, and then when I was in fourth grade, you think of your life in grades, you know, not ages, we moved out to New Jersey. Okay. But it was very close to New York City. I I read somewhere about how... Your formative years really kind of shaped a little bit of your value system. Can you tell us about that? I never consciously thought that that was the case. Uh, I was very fortunate to have two loving parents, younger sister who was six years younger, so they could focus on me for the first six years, and then I thought I was still the center of the universe when she arrived. Neither of my parents had gone to college. They were born and raised in New York City, went to a local high school and graduated right around the beginning of the Depression. My mother was 15 when she graduated. Those years, they would skip people so they could get out and work. And she worked in first year in the factory and then uh, as a secretary and worked her way up. And my father was a, a salesman not a door-to-door salesman, but uh, had to really work on relationships. And I think it was a very nurturing environment. Uh, But I always had um, an angst about the world. I wasn't like one of these contented kids. So it kept me uh, questioning just about everything. Uh, including any views you know my father might have. He was a reader of the New York Times, uh, very smart again, even though he didn't go to college. And he, I would challenge him, and he didn't like that much. Uh, but the other part about both of them was that they didn't have any fixed idea about what I should do uh, when I grew up. Uh, it was assumed I would go to college, uh, but it wasn't one of these speeches, you know, we worked hard so you can go to college. We didn't go to college. You need to go to college. It was just assumed. Uh, I, they were not involved in helping me select where to go. I made those decisions. And I, I look back now, parents are completely involved yes. in the decisions. And I sometimes think, well, maybe I would have made different choices, And it's, which is funny because when I was with my own son, and I wanted him to go to a good school. He ended up going to Tufts up in Massachusetts, got him tutoring for his SATs, and I said, you've got to improve them, got to go to a good school. (laughs) He said to me, 
Well, because uh, I had just been appointed to the Supreme Court or I was on the 4th District, he goes, well, you went to Boston University and George Washington and look where you are. You know, in other words, he was sort of saying I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so what am I talking about? But my point with my parents were that they didn't push me. And I think that in that environment, uh, I was able to flourish, but then become my own person, especially when I got to college uh, in the late 60s, which was a very turbulent time. Yes. What was the angst about? Like if if you were to kind of categorize growing up the angst, where was it focused? In high school, I it was an excellent high school. It was an all white suburb in New Jersey, white because of the the uh, residential segregation, not the so de facto really. Uh, and there it was a very Everybody was very, there was very clicky. You know, there was the popular kids, there were the smart kids, there were the athletic kids. And I was always feeling like, well, where did I fit in? And then my father was quite opinionated. And it was right, you know, I graduated in 1966. It was right at the beginning of what now we call women's liberation. And I expected more from my mother. I expected she should be doing something more than just being this wonderful stay-at-home mother that did volunteer, that did, you know, made a you know loving home. I wanted her to do more. So I was angry, and, you know, I was angry. I was um, raised uh, in the Jewish faith, but I never felt that—I I felt they went through the, through the motions— but I really didn't get what was the importance of these traditions. Uh, and so that made me angry that they didn't know more, uh, that we were just going through the motions. Uh, I think one of the other defining parts was the legacy uh, and the horrible history of the Holocaust. As a young girl, I remember seeing the Life magazine to see that, uh, you know, what had happened to people like me, kids like me. read the diary of Anne Frank, you know, in middle, junior high school, and that impacted me greatly. So I started to see the world wasn't all—I was very fortunate, but the world seemed pretty unfair to me, and that unfairness carried through into um, college— where, uh, again, the Vietnam War was uh, really starting to take uh, hold because the draft was put in place, and so there were protests about that. Uh, we had professors in political science that explained things about American foreign policy that we weren't like the, the angel of the world, as I had been led to believe. Uh, and my father, by the way, had fought in World War II. Okay. So he was, uh, you know, very adamant about, uh, you know, the world order because communism was taking hold. And, you know, he would talk about China, which I had just returned from as Red China. Because uh, 1949, they became, you know, Mao took over. So it was a time in the country of great turmoil. We had the civil rights movement, and yet it seemed like at home 
Everything was just calm, but yet I was maybe absorbing the chaos and change of the world. And I I would imagine um, that kind of shapes you towards the law, or was there something else that ultimately directed you in that direction? So I go to college with the idea that I'm going to go into some form of communications. Started out at uh, with public relations, then it was going to be journalism, then ultimately it was going to be broadcasting and film, and I had this very um, uh, great interest in educational broadcasting. I always was somebody that was very practical. I understood, and I always said, you know, I'm going to have a profession because I don't want to be dependent on someone else. I then, in the my third year, I well, was— Why was that? Why did you— The idea that there were should be inequality between men and women seemed uh, absurd to me. And my father, you know, we had just the two daughters. He treated us as if we were equals, except we were the kids. Uh, and I think my mother, even though as a, I said this terrible thing to her, I remember this in college coming home, and I, I said to her, don't you feel badly that all you ever did was raise us? You know, mm. and I look back now. She passed away two years ago, and I think, what a terrible thing to say because, look, she, we have, my sister and I are close. She, my sister is a... Uh, a therapist. Uh, she has a master's in social work. She's like the best person I know. And she had she had a loving relationship with my father. How terrible of me. So I feel very badly. I'm sorry, mom. Uh, but yeah, no, how could that be? How could that be right? Just like how could it be right that we had racial segregation? How could it be right that we were fighting a war in a country that we had no business being in, uh, or we were there for the wrong reasons. So two things happened for the law. So you ask about how I got involved. One thing was, uh, one of the courses I took either in my first or second year was a constitutional law class on First Amendment. And I started to read U.S. Supreme Court decisions and found them readable and interesting. That was sort of my first foray into seeing some part of the law other than Perry Mason. Fast forward to my third year in college, and I was, did a project which centered on Harvard uh, Legal Services, which had just started up because the Federal uh, Legal Services Corporation had just been formed. And again, we're, now we're talking about the early 70s. And in doing this documentary workup, I started to see that there was a way that the law could be used to help people who did not have any voice. Because I had also, during college, had been involved with um, welfare rights and helping to organize mothers who were mainly white, because there were a lot of poor sections of Boston, uh, to assert their rights. And yet, as an individual and not as a trained advocate, it was only so much I could do. So after I finished this uh, documentary workup, I changed my focus for two reasons. 
The first reason was that I thought that educational broadcasting, to get involved in that, uh, would be a very difficult field for women to become involved in because there were no women in it in the broadcasting field. I mean, there may have been, but from my point of view. So think about what a naive decision that was in 1973 because I was going to choose law which virtually had no women on the United States Supreme Court, hardly any women lawyers, and probably was as discriminatory a profession as far as having women become involved. So that just shows you how my thought system was my own, but I didn't have like a mentor to say, Perrienti, this is probably not the smartest move for you <laughs> to go uh, become a lawyer. But I applied. I went to George Washington, and that really started me on my legal career. But it was not, uh, you know, you hear people sometimes saying, oh, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer from, from an early age. I had no thought of it. And one other thing for anyone listening, uh, my least favorite course in high school was public speaking. Mm. I was absolutely petrified to get up and speak in public. And, and there, there it happens. You'd end up being a, a trial lawyer and a judge and all of that. In a thousand years, if you go back to college, could you have dreamt of the career that you have lived? Not even remotely. And so I'll t- I tell people, anyone who wants advice, is that don't even concern yourself about what you think you want to do in the long term. You do your best at what you're doing, scholastically. The other part, the critical part for me, is to be involved. Uh, I think one of the other impactful things when I was younger was after my third year in in, uh, college, I Uh, worked volunteer at a legal services office in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, pro bono. And my eyes were open to uh, the need, the tremendous need that uh, uh, low-income people had for legal help. And that just appealed to me. It seemed concrete, and it seemed like a way that you could channel your desire to do good into something productive without sort of saying, getting on a soapbox and just saying, this is wrong or this is wrong. It's a way you could help make things right. The, the angsty part, I, I say that because I have an angsty children. If you were to uh, define the progression of your angst, high school, college, law school, young lawyer, judge, which which has been the most angsty time? That's a great, great question. And there was, a, I'll tell you a different way. I was in either my first or second year with the law firm that, where I met my husband. And I was working on a case, and I think this is where Fred gets, I was a perfectionist, but I prepared, 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 and I was constantly feeling the pressure and not being happy. And a another lawyer who subsequently became a judge, Ron Alvarez, 
said to me, you know, Barbara, you're so negative. Because what he was seeing with whatever was going on was not, was, was something that was bringing me down. And that wasn't my intention. And it was, that was a, a revelation for me. And in fact, I looked at it and I remember thinking there was someone else in the law firm that always seemed happy and content. And I'm thinking, well, does having angst, does it go with having, like, thinking too much? You know, maybe if, you know, I wasn't spending all my time thinking about everything that could go wrong or about the world. Uh, my, my sister says that her husband has a word for it. She, he calls it global grieving. You know, when you see something awful happening, like there's a flood or you know, in down in Southeast Asia, you know, and you just feel for these people. Well, maybe you can send money, but if you globally grieve all the time, you'll be completely depressed and and uh, almost catatonic. So I would say that probably my angst was the worst in college, going back for your, you know, for your son or for anyone, but it was, but it wasn't a negative angst. It was an angst of revelation. I think my angst was at its, uh, at its height, but then my commitment to do something about it started to evolve. And so I would say that it got, it got better. And certainly by the time I became an appellate court judge, which was in my 40s, have the ability both to make a difference in, uh, in, not in, you know, an agenda, like some people think you come and you come with an agenda. No, you come with this idea that you're going to look at every case, you're going to analyze each case, and you're going to make sure that you were able to uh, explain the reasoning in a way that is uh, logical and compelling, and it's a wonderful. I guess I'm, you know, skipping ahead to why that was so great because you've got lawyers on both sides that are giving you uh, the best arguments. So going back to the the earlier days, yeah, I think it just got better and better, and it got challenged into being productive, which is really important, because if your angst becomes paralyzed, paralyzing, then you need to get help. And this is, we go back to this idea of what lawyers can use. You know, there is nothing, nothing shameful. And in fact, it is a good thing to seek therapy. Yes. Everybody can benefit. You give me somebody that says they had a perfect childhood, I'll say, I'll give you someone that's in denial. There is no such thing. And there's no such thing as I've had a perfect life. No, there is no such thing. And as I said uh, to you earlier, you know, it's, it's how, it's not whether you're going to have adversity, but it's really how you deal with that adversity once you're confronted with it that will define who you are. I think the I see a counselor, I find it very uh, impactful in my ability to almost curate what's going on in my brain in a, in a healthy way. I found it very, very helpful. That's great. And that is, you know, just talking about it, you know, I think that men in particular 
feel that it is something, it's a sign of weakness. No, it's a sign of strength to be able to uh, understand that we don't have all the answers. And, you know, spouses and friends, they can give lots of good advice, but it's uh, that's free and that sometimes is what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope this isn't inappropriate, but I want to ask this. What decision, either as a Fourth District Court of Appeals judge or a Florida Supreme Court justice, caused you the most angst when you were trying to make it or write it? That is, it's, it's not an inappropriate question. It's, I think I'll go to what would be the most uh, uh, comes to mind is the whole the series of opinions in Bush v. Gore yes. in the 2000 election. And for that, the reason being is that we had to make these decisions in a enlightening speed and we had to come together, at least, you know, four of us to do something when we knew the whole world was watching, but we w- were dedicated to getting the law right, where, and that probably produced the most angst because it was in a, an unnatural uh, environment, both the political spotlight as well as the time frame. And you ultimately, if I'm correct, or you authored the decision? The, for both decisions, it was uh, that famous uh, justice per curiam. Okay. <laughs> I, though, uh, in the last decision after the U.S. Supreme Court had told us uh, we, it was over, I wrote a uh, concurrence which laid out all the problems in Florida's uh electoral legislative scheme and what needed to happen to uh, improve it. And not because of me, I don't think, but it, it, it would be, it's worthwhile to go back to because it lays out um, uh, the problems. And I think we now have automatic recounts. We There are some things that were put into place subsequently, but we nobody was taking credit uh, for the majority opinions, uh, the first one, major one, was unanimous, and uh, the second one was split. But there was also, I, as I did a podcast on this, uh, actually in this very uh, room, there were s- several opinions written in that same six-week period that were quite favorable to uh, President Bush we had ways that we could have invalidated the butterfly ballot here in Palm Beach County, which and caused a new election. There was some, some basis for that. Uh, there was some basis for invalidating some absentee ballots in, uh, in St. Lucie and Volusia County, and there were some overseas ballots. And since it was only a few hundred votes apart, uh, that could have made a difference. So when people look back and say, well, that was a partisan decision, I more and more, as I have had some recent chance to look back, uh, actually see how non, totally nonpartisan mm. it was. For someone, if you know, do you know where that podcast is, if someone wanted to listen to that? It's uh, part, I'll, I'll get it if you want to add it on. Yes. It's actually part of a podcast podcast 
that a uh, podcast on Slate wrote about Bush v. Gore. So okay. it's it's part of about a seven uh, seven episodes. He he interviewed uh, his first name's Leon. He interviewed a lot of the actors, including Secretary of State Harris, uh, Charlie Wells, uh, Barry Richard. And uh, some of uh, Gore's counsel. The uh, the lawyering in the Bush versus Gore. Uh, hard to imagine more impressive lawyering than Barry Richards and uh, David Boyce. I, I can't imagine what that was like to have the national spotlight on with that quality lawyering, with that weighty of an issue. Well, it's interesting you say that because you, as a trial lawyer, see. That part, they were excellent lawyers, but we were still charged with one day after each oral argument coming out with a fully blown opinion. Uh, where, where again, at least four people had to agree, and electronic everything was still not fully developed. Uh, so there were a lot of there were all nighters. It was quite a time. But I'd say, just to the answer, what produced the most angst, uh, that probably did in that way. Now, on the other hand, uh, I presided or was part of more death warrant cases and executions uh, than at any time since the death death penalty was reimposed in Florida. Uh, I... The count was close to a hundred, mm. and I had to uh, take away any emotion about the ultimate penalty, uh, and be part of ensuring that everything had been done fairly, and uh, that uh, you know, for, at least from my point of view, even though it may have been quote too late that there wasn't really a question of the guilt or innocence. So for anyone thinking that the Florida Supreme Court just tries, just hears all these sort of more high-profile cases, a good percentage of the time has been spent and continues to be spent on death penalty cases. Yes, yeah, just a check and balance to uh, be sure we're doing what we can. I can't imagine the weight that you would feel um, doing that. Well, again, but you're, you know, you're a reviewing court. So the decision, the sentence has been imposed, the jury has weighed in, the judges weighed in. Our job is not to second guess, except, you know, except there's something called proportionality, but to make sure everything was done according to the law and, you know, read the entire record to make sure that everybody has been given a fair shake I mean, everybody being defendants, and then the post-conviction to make sure the lawyer uh, has done his or her job. Let me uh, track your jobs to figure out the one you've enjoyed best. Um, You were a a federal law clerk, and then you were a trial lawyer, and and most people may not realize you were a board-certified trial lawyer, which means you you tried cases, a significant amount of cases, and, and then you were an appellate judge with the 4th District Court of Appeals and then a Florida Supreme Court justice and then the chief justice of the Florida Supreme Court. If you were to uh, pick the the one role that you most enjoyed, which would it be? Being chief justice? Yes. <laughs> uh, it was, 
I would just I would say that I I I enjoyed it because the part of the Supreme Court that trial lawyers I'll give you another just relating back to your other question that trial lawyers don't see is the tremendous administrative aspects of the court system uh, the need for adequate funding for our trial courts uh, and I was fortunate during the two years that I was. Uh, Chief Justice, to we were in a seri- uh, in a transition from a lot of localized funding to r- statewide funding for all of the trial courts. So that the idea was that if you were in Miami Dade or up in the Panhandle, you would have the same resources, case managers, uh, especially important for um, family cases which, by the way, takes up a good percentage of the civil uh, trial load of circuit courts around the state. So we had a unique opportunity to really make our case to the legislature about the need for not only just uniform uh, funding, but adequate funding. And that, we working with amazing trial judges, uh, people uh, in your area, Belvin Perry, who was uh, very critical. Fred Lawton, I'm not sure what his position was at the time, but I, I love Fred Lawton, now retired, one of my favorite people up in your neck of the woods. Both Belvin and uh, uh, Judge Lawton were incredible chief judges for our circuit. I mean, very, very impactful. Right, and and that's... Uh, and. And you get to work with the chief judges, and then you get, it's not like you've got your two years and you can say, oh, my two years are going to be, I'm the justice for, fa- for children. You really have to be there to carry out what, what this branch, branch's needs are. And you know, many trial judges who headed their respective courts, is that, you know, it's like herding cats, because you've got... Uh, almost a thousand judges between county court, circuit court, appellate court, who all think that they're, you know, they're that they are independent constitutional officers. So I enjoyed that challenge. I think it was also for me. It was shortly after I had breast cancer, and so it was so life affirming mm. to be able to do that. I want to ask you of the the hardest battle you've had to personally fight. I, I think of breast cancer, but I also think of the attack uh, of the independence of the judiciary, how ugly that was when that occurred. But I don't want to limit it to that. And and what I found is, what I like to learn is, what did you learn uh, through that of how to walk through the battle? Breast cancer, in some ways, was easier because it was, it was my battle. Uh, the merit retention battle, uh, what I learned, first of all, is that in the state of Florida among, at that point, maybe there were 60, 70, 80,000 lawyers, very few lawyers cared. Mm. That was sad to me. I mean, the Florida Bar as an organization was incredibly helpful, uh, Scott Hawkins, who's a lawyer uh, with Jones and Foster, and uh, he, the bar, stepped up to the plate to run a education 
campaign about merit uh, retention. Let me pause real quick just for people that may have missed it. If if we were to summarize it in a a bullet point fashion, it was basically big business or some special interest group made a targeted choice to try to attack sitting Florida Supreme Court justices. Correct. Using the system, which many Florida lawyers still may still not know, called merit selection and retention, which is how we appoint and retain our Supreme Court justices and appellate judges. So we were targeted 2012. Uh, at that time, there was um, Governor Scott was the governor. Uh, the legislature, well, had been, you know, since the uh, the 90s, was Republican. And there were th- three of us, Justice Quince, Justice uh, Lewis, and myself. We had been appointed by the last Democratic governor, Lawton Childs, and there was a belief that they, uh, a group, I don't know if it was just big business, I think it was uh, probably also, that was right around the rise of the Tea Party, Uh, and so there was this agenda where we can target people uh, who we are going to label as activists, in my view, meaning people that come up with the decisions we don't agree with. Uh, And they had been successful in 2010 in targeting justices on the Iowa Supreme Court who, one was a Republican appointee, they were, you know, middle of the road, but they had come up with an opinion on gay marriage that was saying that under their state constitution, gay marriage ban was unconstitutional. And that created an uproar. So that there was a and it, there was a group uh, that there were political, like in that one, Newt Gingrich was behind it, his group. But there was also the Koch brothers had started something called Americans for Prosperity, uh, which they still, I think, have as a political arm, uh, and were going to target us. And at least if they couldn't remove us, get us supposedly very worried. So that was, I think, it was as awful a time as I can imagine because by targeting all three of us, but the way the our ethics code read and we were so hamstrung, even uh, in our ability to, quote, campaign together. And the question was, what could we say? How do you, in a, in a state at that point of 16 million, uh, reach the, reach the public to let them know what was going on. And uh, it was so outside of our uh, wheelhouse because we also were, you know, had working, trying to run the Florida Supreme Court. Well, I look, that one was at, I think at that point, let me think 2012, uh, I think Justice Kennedy was chief justice, excuse me. So uh, we, we didn't have that gig at that point, but we, had full caseloads. What was so frustrating was the limitations on getting our message out. Uh, So ultimately, I think the message that was um, delivered was that this was a politically motivated attack. And I was fortunate to have uh, Raul Contero as one of my uh, co-chairs. And again, I'm not sure if your audience is familiar with 
Justice Cantero, but he was on the Supreme Court. He's a Cuban-American, and he is generally considered to be uh, very cautious. I hate to use the label, but to be more in the Scalia mode of decision-making. So, But he felt, rightly so, that it could be today it's me, tomorrow it could be somebody uh, that uh, someone else disagrees with, and that that is not what the system of merit retention was meant to do, but yet you're fighting uh, a... uh, a public that doesn't know why why are those judges on the ballot? Yes. Why am I voting yes or no? You telling me I just vote yes and you have to explain well they went through merit selection so they're all qualified. This is only to be uh exercised if they did something that was wrong or they're lazy or they're this and that was never there was never an attack on our ethics. So that was a that that lasted, you know, almost a year. I think it really took a toll on all of us. I would say, again, the, the lawyers uh, felt, well, oh, you're not, you're, you're not at any risk for being removed. So I could count on in a, very, a very small number of lawyers, uh, and there were defense lawyers. Some got involved, but others said, oh, my law firm, you know, doesn't, you know, they don't like your jurisprudence on products liability, so we can't get involved. And then, unfortunately, lawyers that were business lawyers who do not uh, go to court didn't see how does that affect them, whereas what my message would be is our court system is there for all of us. And all of us have to care if you're even, you know, if you're not a trial lawyer, it is important that we have a system, uh, a judicial system that has integrity that has excellence in who we are either electing or appointing. It is a reflection of who our, our state is and also that we, our justice system needs to be there for all the people, not tilted one way or another. Yes. Well, I love that uh, your pain through that has led to action, that you're still fighting that battle. Less so since I've retired, although I was on a conference call yesterday. We uh, we uh, ended up really being motivated in Florida, and then it went nation- nationally to something called the Informed Voters Project. But I, I, what I love are organizations such as the American College or ABOTA, which are not, you know, plaintiffs yes. or defense, because this, again, is the message that we need a system, a judicial system for all of us, or we're going to find ourselves on the losing end if it's seen to be a political system. Yes. Let me, uh, let me get a little practical, if I can. Um, oral argument. One of my early mentors once told me, um, you can't win a case in an oral argument, but you surely can lose it. Is that true, or is that just a, a myth? Two things. You definitely can lose it in oral argument, but it doesn't happen as much. But we do see on the winning side that there are some people that have their briefs are a B minus and their oral oral argument is an A. Uh, And uh, the key is for those that are uh, the respondent or the appellee, 
is it's all about careful listening. So you're up, you're there, you got all your notes about what you want to say, and maybe you forget to be paying absolute attention to what the argument is and what the judges are asking. And so on the issue of the losing, you know, if you think you have a winning argument, so you're the appellee, and you think you have the winning argument, uh, sometimes the smartest thing to do is just to say a few quick, you know, words and then just say, I'll, uh, you know, cede the rest of my time. That's music to judges' ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, but how you can lose it is you don't listen, and then you start to make arguments, and you all of a sudden something comes up. So that's how you you can lose it. On the winning side, or you think you have a winning argument, is again, is the ability to answer questions. So what we always say about preparation for oral argument is think about the most difficult question, the hardest question in your case, and make sure you have answers for it, number one. Number two, to be absolutely the expert on the record. To say, I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know the answer to that, it's a killer, because then you think they're hiding something or you don't think they're as prepared. Third part is, especially at the Supreme Court, you're there to win the case for your client. But how the opinion is going to be written is not just going to be about your case. And so you have to think about the ramifications. What is the rule of law that you are advocating for? And is it okay, it will be good for your client in this case, but how does it translate? And I think lawyers, again, for I can understand it, but don't think about that. So I would say, if I were advising, is since you've spent all that time reviewing the record, winning or losing or however it is, write out how do you think an opinion should be written? And you might say, well, wait a second, it can't, I can't, that's not going to be an opinion to say, you know, uh, he was a great guy and he should win because he's a great guy, yes. you know, or because I'm so smart. What is the rule of law? That What's will the be bigger picture that it the court has to be? Because that's yes. what you know at the Supreme Court level for sure. Let's let's go to uh, advice for female lawyers. It's obviously a very different uh, time of history today than when you began 45 years ago. Um, it's, it's different. You know, there's, uh, I, I heard recently something like half or maybe even more of the, the new lawyers that are coming out are uh, women lawyers. Um, what advice would you give to younger women lawyers that are trying to find their place in this profession? It, the... Advice is that there, are, there should be no limits in what area of law you choose, uh, that this issue of having confidence, uh, you got through law school, hopefully you, you excelled, you made it a, a significant investment, and you deserve to be where you think you want to be. But as Fred said earlier, 
you hope that they're going to have passion. At that point, then, it's about uh, what I would really say for both men and women, working hard, uh, being somebody that can be counted on, uh, being being willing to go the extra mile. And then uh, my advice for the courtroom for both men and women, and it may be controversial, but I started out, of course, at a time when how you dressed, you know, there were no pantsuits. If you're going to be a trial lawyer, uh, I think it is better to wear uh, suits. But if you wear pants, I don't know where, you know, what part of the state you're practicing in. But if you're wearing a skirt, they've got to be, uh, you know, at least mid mid knee length. You know, there because if you're going in the courtroom, you've got either a judge that you've got to convince, uh, and or a jury, and there is no reason to do something that might, even if it's a small amount of offense. You know, it's just like lawyers aren't going to go in and, uh, you know, wear colorful shirts. I mean, male lawyers, you know, colorful shirts or tie. Well, maybe some of them do. I remember back Maybe in in Miami. Maybe in Miami or Fort Lauderdale. (laughs) But, you know, certainly. So I think dressing in a way that's important. And then it's an issue of, for men and women, work-life balance. So as you decide uh, about choosing or uh, being becoming involved with another person in your life, uh, that the issue there has to be, is there mutual respect? Because if you make a bad choice in that, uh, where there's not 100% support, that can be uh, very difficult. And I think, again, it goes both ways. Uh, the issue then about... Uh, the decision to have children follows because your partner, male or female, if you're a female, we have you know same-sex partners, uh, has to be committed to child raising. Uh, I um, tell a story uh, about my own firm, the, fir- the firm that uh, I started with in 1975, first female lawyer. Uh, 1977, I was pregnant with my son, and I nobody talked about maternity leave, anything. And because of that, I had to make my own decision. My own decision, you know, I hired somebody to uh, come, that would come into the house, uh, but was to go. I went back to work in three weeks. It is. Do I regret it? Of course, yeah, I, re- I, I regret it. I, I re- I'm sorry for myself that I didn't do more to advocate for me uh, or that someone else there didn't advocate for me. The issue then is how, what kind of work-life balance, uh, when I say work-life, that does sound, work, you know, personal life, work-life, personal life, uh, are you going to have the good news is, which I don't think we realized at the time, is that children, uh, babies, and then toddlers flourish in 
uh, quality early child care. Uh, you know, there's, I love taking care of my granddaughter, but as a grandmother, you know, do I really know, uh, you know, she's so smart, you know, how to, how to take advantage of that, whereas there are some excellent places, but, you know, for that. Uh, and then also, where, what firm are you with? What are their policies? They should value you because you bring a, a, a dynamic. Uh, if you're with a firm that does a, has a corporate practice, you know, there are a lot of uh, CEOs that want to see diversity. Uh, or general counsel, I should say. Uh, and in, uh, you know, f- and firms should be willing to look at that and realize that's a, a positive thing. Uh, when I was uh, about to go, you know, give birth, and I worked until right before um, Josh was born, uh, there was a lawyer who had been called in up from the reserves. And they put next to him on military leave. And I used to joke about, and I joked about it, but I, it, why couldn't it say Barbara Perrienti on maternity leave? And I can't I'd even say, imagine that today, not having that. Well, but how about putting, you know, what's wrong with putting it on the letterhead? Maybe your clients are going to feel very good about that. So I think the advice is to be in a, a firm that if you decide that you do want to have children, I think, again, the, idea, you know, the, the time uh, clock is much longer than it was when, you know, when I was at that age. You, know, you sort of thought Excuse me. if you became 30, you were, that was the end, and it's obviously not. Uh, and to be in an environment where you are able to, to do that. But I know, you know I'm involved with the local uh, women lawyers uh, group and they, you know, it continues to be an issue. So my advice is to advocate for it, to be involved in both uh, regular lawyer organizations, your local bar, but also uh, stay involved in, and if there's a local women lawyers association, I know there are some excellent ones in Orlando, to be able to talk that out and to advocate for it. Yes. One more practical area. Um, I, I know you uh, you were made to have your life be impactful. You, the time period of feeling angst, you've lived your whole life trying to make impact. Kids, uh, oppressed people. If you were to shift to the positive side uh, and you were giving advice to lawyers who want to make impact, they, they, they don't want to leave the practice of law, they'd love to stay there, but they want to live an impactful life. What are some areas where you believe uh, subtle shifts or a little bit of move, uh, they could live a fulfilled life making a big difference? I know there are a lot of lawyers that become involved in community organizations many times because they think it's good for you know, their, uh, their practice. Uh, what I would say, especially to trial lawyers, is that trial lawyers tend to stay in their own wheelhouse. Uh, you mentioned how since advertising that there's less and less, uh, there's more and more specialization. But you also mentioned that 
because you're in Orlando, that you have advocated as a guardian at litem. We need excellent trial lawyers to become involved in their local legal aid, legal services uh, organizations, and see the projects, the lawyering that they can do to contribute, because they're going to make wonderful advocates. And every time you talk to lawyers who have become involved in pro bono, uh, which is an aspirational obligation, uh, many lawyers think, well, we can just pay the whatever amount, you know, $350, $500, and satisfy it, which is, to me, crazy, because they've their hourly rate is at least that in this day and age, uh, that they will gain from it. But to give of themselves, they will find that they have made a difference in uh, the life of, could be just one person, uh, but it will mean the world to that one person. So that would be uh, an easy way and I say to sometimes to younger lawyers when they go, I don't have time, go, how, how much time do you spend these days binge-watching your favorite program, uh, you know, with this proliferation with Netflix and Hulu and, you know, Amazon Prime? I, mean, I don't know how people have time to watch these things. Uh, you know, I tend to go to bed a little earlier these days. So talk to your local legal aid or legal services organizations. Uh, if, as an organization, if you've got a, a group that you're part of locally, uh, see together are there projects that you can become involved in, I will guarantee that you will get more out of it uh, than you give uh, because truly there is no better uh, way to uh for those endorphins to flow. Well, I guess winning a case is pretty good, but to feel that you use your legal skills to truly help somebody who otherwise might have been out of their house uh, or any of the other <coughs> multiple legal issues that they face. Yes, very true. Well, uh, Justice Periente, thank you so much for your, uh, your time. Thank you for the example. Uh, that you provide. I'm excited for my daughters to hear this. I'm excited for my son to hear this. Um, you're a great example of someone who has cared about family, uh, kids, grandkids, the law, and making an impact. So thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for doing this podcast. <laughs>